And I just love being able to worship. It's, it's different, obviously, the way that we're doing it. It's different for those of us that are here. Um, but we worship God in spirit and truth. And I think about that invitation in Psalm 34. Um, Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And what an opportunity we have to demonstrate that in these unusual sets of circumstances. I'm, I'm curious how you would describe how you feel right now in this season of life. You know, what word would you attach to it? And, and, and how do you describe your, your emotions? And, and I know I've had different ones throughout this whole journey, but uh, probably the one that I'm most mindful of this morning is gratitude and, and just thankfulness. And, and I want to take some time really here at the beginning to um, elaborate as to why and just uh, really take some time to demonstrate some appreciation for um, so many people that I've just seen God use in tremendous ways. I think back on our Easter services last week and really all of last week in just uh, the unique requirements that were, that were needed and necessary to pull it off and, and how that was indicative of not just Easter, but really everything we're doing. And, and I think about the technological infrastructure that we've had to put in place. And I think it goes without mentioning that we are incredibly indebted, indebted to folks like Ryan Rains and Matt Bowen. I can't tell you how many times we've been on a text message, the three of us, and we're talking about plans and, and ideas. And I have no idea how we're going to pull it off, but I have complete confidence that those two do. And uh, man, their skills and their uh, abilities to provide so much of this to us, I'm just incredibly grateful for. You think about last Sunday, we had that awesome cross uh, down front, and, and it was just beautifully adorned with flowers. And obviously, that was your contribution by bringing those flowers by. But, you know, when we first had that vision, we were looking around the church for a cross and couldn't find one that really uh, kind of mirrored and, and indicated this sort of vision that we had in mind. And so we talked to John Fisher, and, and in typical John Fisher fashion, he's like, I'll build one. And he just, he put that thing together and it's beautiful. I mean, it's just magnificent. And uh, just one more example of how he's blessed us. Uh, folks like Debbie Roach and Sarah Thornton uh, made it look beautiful. Even when my mind couldn't quite grasp how we were going to pull it off. Uh, you know, both of those ladies gave us the assurance, look, it's going to look great and it's going to be beautiful. And they used their talents and their skills to do that. I think about the entire staff. Um, I think about how Caroline has worked so hard to make sure you guys are staying connected together and just pouring into the formation of these groups, how Jason continues to pour into our youth and, and our college students and working to, to continue to invest in their lives. April, uh, working consistently with families. You hear from Kevin every week and, and just the, the team that they are and how they continue to enrich the life of our children in preschool ministry. Uh, you think about Kathy, uh, she's had tireless work on all the things that are related to finances, the economy, and, and what that means for our giving. She's typically our moderator on, on, our, on these services. She's the one behind a lot of those comments and uh, does such a, a great job of, of maintaining those connections. You think about uh, Jenny and her tireless work for the promotions and, and all the different communication that's required at this point. Uh, you've got Rindo that's here throughout the week. Uh, Sarah is the glue that holds all of it together and is really kind of getting it all coordinated and detailed. Katie is working consistently to check who's here with us and, and who's uh, new and how can we reach out. Um, I, I can't tell you how many times over the last six weeks that I have just marveled at this team and how grateful I am to be a part of this team. And, and I know that this staff and, and some of these critical volunteers that have really had to be leaned upon during the season are just indicative of a great church family. 
right? I, I think about the Lenten devotional and how timely that was. You know, we didn't, we didn't envision this, but how amazing that through a, a majority of the season of Lent, we had an opportunity to hear from each other, right? I mean, we, we had a chance to, to be in God's word together and, and to hear from all the different writers that contributed, literally people from all over the world that were connected to our church that uh, were able to look to the gospel of Luke and, and encourage us through those reflections and through God's truth. I think about um, a good friend of mine, uh, Britt Guadalagno, who uh, helped lay it all out and, and make it happen, be praying for her as she and her husband Ryan are expecting their first child. And uh, Jenny, again, kind of a, a chief project manager for it, but, but I'd be uh, remiss to not mention Sharon Greitz. Uh, when, when she and I first sat down months ago and kind of brainstormed the idea, I mean, she just ran with it and helped put it all together and, and gather the writings and was the chief editor through it all and just her giftings and how that devotional has hopefully encouraged all of us during this time and in the way that our church family just continues to come together. And, and so you see things like that, but even looking beyond the Easter season and some of these operational needs and just these ministries that, that Matt mentioned. Um, I think about some of the things that have happened to the Presbyterian Night Shelter. And I've been in conversation with Toby Owen, obviously a member of our church and the CEO there of the Presbyterian Night Shelter, and, and their whole operation system has drastically changed. And I'm so grateful for people like Toby and the way the Lord is using him. He is the perfect man for that job and the way he has exhibited such tremendous leadership, but has invited our church into that partnership. And he sent me an email this weekend saying that up to this point, I believe our church has contributed somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,245 masks. That's incredible. Church like ours is getting over thousands of, of masks and we still need them. They still need them. They, they need about 200 a day. And so that's a way for you to continue to partner with that ministry. Uh, they need volunteers there to help with screenings. Um, I, I think about this new tutoring initiative that's just been launched. Uh, Sherry Park has been working with the administration at Seminary Hills Park Elementary and uh, given a lot of their international demographics and their, uh, the Parks family uh, background in different languages, they've really kind of cultivated this vision to provide some tutoring to these kids that really need it as, as the whole education infrastructure has changed. So we need like 35 to 40 volunteers to come along and help tutoring. And, and April is going to be our staff representative to help with that. And I know they've started gathering volunteers, and that's something for you to consider. Uh, the food distribution has been a consistent source of ministry through this entire time uh, through your generosity, right? Providing food and, and providing those donations on a weekly basis up here at our preschool suite drop-off. We have a team that comes up early in the week and wipes it all down and disinfects it and packages it up. And then we have a team that comes later in the week and they deliver it. And I, I haven't really written it all down to, to have an official tally, but I know we're in the neighborhood of 80 to 100 homes that have been blessed through that generosity. Uh, but what's really neat about it is not so much the numbers, but the stories. Uh, I think about how we started hearing stories early into this process of a guy that wasn't connected to our church at all, a guy named Raymond, who just called us up. And like many people said, I lost my job. I've got nothing. Can, can your church do something for me, anything? And the fact that we were able to take groceries, right? We got a similar call this week uh, from a young family uh, whose husband is, is disabled and the wife just lost their job. And again, they're like, can, can you help us? And the fact that we're able to say yes is just, I'm grateful for it. Uh, I think about the young family that I talked to this past week uh, doing uh, distributions. I'd had a chance to deliver to them before and uh, just talking to them over the phone and you could hear it in her voice. She's got three children, no job, no car. 
And you could just feel the weight of, of what people are going through. And she said it, man, these are hard days. Uh, but to be able to, to encourage her, remind her of Jesus, pray with her, and, and to have some capacity for us to not just say it, but show the love of Christ. I, there are story upon story, and I'm sure I forgot names and people along the way, uh, that I'm just grateful. Like, I'm truly grateful today. I, I, I guess what I would say is I love the church. Love her. Right? I, I love what she's meant to be. And I love what she's capable of when people come together. Right? All, all those things that I've referenced are, are examples of unity, examples of togetherness. And, and when you really stop and see it working the way that it's working and, and being um, utilized the way it's being utilized, how can you not but stop and be grateful? And so that's what I want to do. I, I want to stop and just offer up prayers of gratitude um, for each of you, uh, for what God's doing in your lives, but more importantly, uh, for what he does when he calls us together. And so let's pray for a moment and ask him to bless us in this time. Father, we do come before you uh, with just a spirit of gratitude and joy. Father, we know that um, we have entered into a unique season that few of us could have ever anticipated or imagined. And as we have uh, tried to adapt and adjust and and just pivot what life looks like. A lot of times that change and that disruption can be met with challenges that can be met with things that are disheartening or discouraging. And yet there is such beauty that is taking place around us. Some, so many incredible examples of, of what it looks like when your people come together and love each other well and love the community that you've placed them in. And so for that, God, we're grateful we're grateful for this plan that you have revealed to us that is found in the church, that is found in togetherness. We're grateful for a gospel that unites us. God, because we know that without Jesus, we know that without that grace, without that saving, that those distances would still be too far to overcome. But because of his love, we get to come together. And so I pray that that love would be a fixture in our hearts and our minds, not just this morning, but forever. And as we uh, approach your word and as we approach your scriptures this morning, God, that once again, we can do so with gratitude, but also with expectation that once again, you will enrich our understanding to see just how beautiful it is to be a part of the body of Christ and to experience the togetherness that we have in you. We love you, Father, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter four. Uh, here comes the shift. If you read through the book of Ephesians, there is a noticeable shift between chapters three and four, really the first half of the letter and the second half. And, and it's somewhat common to Paul's approach to writing many of his letters. What he did in the first half of, of Ephesians, chapters one through three, was really an invitation to praise, right? We talked about that in chapter one, this baraka, this, this Jewish prayer that, that is, it is designed to really elicit blessing to God. Praise be to God. And it ends with that crescendo, that doxology that we looked at last week. To him be the glory forever and ever, right? You have this incredible reminder of what God has done in Christ Jesus. And so everything is meant to inspire. It's meant to encourage. It's meant to focus our minds on everything that has been done in Christ Jesus. It's really theology, right? It's understanding God. It's understanding his plan. It's understanding who he is and what he's revealed. But he's doing that as a foundation for this shift 
right? That now leads you out of the theological and into the practical, right? Because God has done all this, because this is what's been accomplished in Christ Jesus, this then is how you should live, right? He uses that as a shift towards the, the practical, as a shift towards this is how you need to live your life. And so we see that shift take place in chapter four, and it really continues through the rest of the letter. And that's really gonna be kind of our focus uh, really for the rest of this series is to see how he makes that point of emphasis through the, last, through the rest of the letter in chapters four, five, and six. So with that shift in mind, let's take a look starting in verse one, and we're just gonna read the first six verses today. Chapter four, verse one reads, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. You know, one of the things that, that we see here in this opening statement is really kind of not just the shift, but this theme this, this overarching thesis that really drives the second half of the letter, right? So with all these things described of what's been accomplished for us in Christ Jesus, Paul says, I urge you then, right? As a prisoner of the Lord, I, I implore with you, I insist, right? He's urging with his readers, live a life worthy of the calling you have received, right? And that's the opening theme that really drives the whole second half of the letter. And, and it paints a pretty good picture. What, what we see here with this word worthy is that it literally means to bring one beam in balance with another. Right, so if you picture like weighted scales and, and what we're looking for here is that Paul's trying to say you should have a balance. One should not be skewed more than the other. Essentially what he's saying is that your practice needs to match your profession. Right? Because of everything that we see that's been done in Christ Jesus, what we believe, it should be mirrored in how we live. That's the worthiness that should be held in balance with one another. Right? So you have this, this emphasis that Paul is seeking to make here to say that essentially when you really understand this gracious initiative that God has revealed in Christ Jesus, what it has bestowed upon you is not just high privilege, but high responsibility, right? It's both, right? And a lot of times when we think about the gospel, right? We think about our response to Easter and what it means to us. A lot of times we, we love to to think about and receive the privileges that come with Christ, the privileges that come with the gospel, but we don't always give the same sort of consideration to the responsibility that comes with the gospel, right? So, so give me heaven, give me grace, give me mercy, bless me in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Yes, absolutely, I love that privilege, but as soon as it begins to shift and say, but now here's a responsibility that is also entrusted with you for the gospel, that's a lot of times where we can fall short. Right? And that's the balance that he's talking about. That's living your life worthy in a, manner of call, uh, in a measure of the calling that you've received. And so the opening question, the question that you and I have to ask is, is that imbalance? Right? It, do we truly mirror what we profess? Do we practice what we believe? Right? Or, or do we just enjoy the privileges of the gospel? Or do we actually emulate uh, a, a lifestyle that demonstrates the responsibility of the gospel? What does that look like for you? You know, one of the ways that we are able to strive for this and part of the, the themes that we're going to see, not just today, but I think throughout this, this second part of his letter is accountability, right? That's why the church becomes so important because that striving for such a life 
is better uh, found and better uh, attempted in the context of community because community creates accountability. I know in my own life, right, perhaps one of the greatest areas of accountability uh, comes from the four people that I come home to every day, right, that I want to be the sort of husband that my wife deserves. I want to be the sort of father that she desires for her kids. But if I'm honest, probably the greatest source of accountability are the three children that I have, right, because I want them to know that, that their dad is the same dad at home that he is on Sunday morning, right, and that he, he doesn't just speak about things, but he lives certain things out, because I know they're watching, and I know I can't fool them, right? I know that, that they're going to observe, and they're going to see, and so that, that sort of intimacy creates a really powerful accountability, and so maybe it's not family, but the reality is, is that we have to invite people into our lives that see us in all seasons, all circumstances, all situations, in order for us to, to find that accountability, to try to practice what we profess, and it's not always just through that intimate relationship, sometimes it's through the calling that we've received, the purpose that God has given us through the gospel as well. That a lot of times what we discover is that this gospel is going to lead us to darkened places, right? Darkened places in the world to meet needs, to help those that are beyond the, an understanding of what the gospel really offers. And when we do that, those folks look in on us, look in on us and want to see, do you actually practice what you profess, right? Do you actually mirror these things in your life. That's where accountability takes place. What we discover is that this gospel compels us to darken places as well as to intimate relationships, and we find accountability in both. And when we have that sort of relationship, right, that's what's going to lead us to living a life that's worthy of the calling that we've received. Now, one of the first markers of that worthy life is unity, right? A distinct oneness. And that's really what Paul describes in verses two through six. And so here's how I want to approach the, the rest of this paragraph today. I actually kind of want to go slightly backwards. I want to look at verses four through six first, and then we're going to go back to verses two and three. And the reason for that is that when you look at verses four through six, what we have here is Paul is describing the realities upon which the church is founded, right? This is kind of a reality that he's saying, don't forget this, right? This is the foundation for this unity, for these relationships, um, and so I want us to look at that first, and then we'll see in verses 2 and 3 the conduct that we should exhibit to preserve and fight for that unity. And so when you look at verses 4 through 6, there's this really unique structure that's in place, right? You, you have really triads, or, or three sets of three. Um, you, you have three descriptions, and then three descriptions, and then three descriptions. And so there's this rhythm to the structure there, and I just want to try to succinctly walk through all of those as concisely, but also appropriately as I can. And, and you'll notice that theme of unity and oneness. And so, so the first set of three really starts with that we are called to one body, one spirit, one hope. Okay. And so you see some distinctive qualities here. If, again, if we're imagining how these readers are interpreting this at the time in which this letter is originally received, you think about that Greco-Roman time period and part of what was unique to it was the many options that you could choose from, right? It was a polytheistic culture. There were many cults, many gods, many temples, many temples that you could go to. And so for them to, to all of a sudden see this, this oneness, right, that you are now called into one body, right, this one group, this one family is really distinct, right? The message of the gospel that Paul's already hit on is that this is Jew and Gentile coming together. This is an inclusion of oneness, not, not a distinction, not a separation that's going to create all these different paths, but there's this oneness that takes place. Now, 
I, I think that can be challenging for us to sometimes connect with in our context because as church history progressed and evolved, we saw the pr proliferation of denominations, right? And so now we've got all these different expressions of, of church, so to speak. Now, what I would argue on a day like today, without going in too much detail, because we're actually going to look a little bit more intimately next week of how you find unity in the midst of diversity. But that's kind of the, the first thing I would say here is that just because there are differences doesn't mean it's a compromise for unity. Now, no doubt there have been through the course of church history and even today, people that choose a denominational preference or a worship style preference or a doctrinal preference or whatever it is, and they have used those preferences as a wedge of disharmony in the body of Christ. That should never be condoned, right? But the reality is, is that you can still have preferences. You, you can still have preferences towards how worship is conducted, how ordinances are provided, and all these different things, and still acknowledge that there is unity in the body of Christ because we all adhere to one message, one hope, one gospel. And what binds that body together are not our preferences, but the spirit of God, right? Which is the next thing that Paul points to, one body, one spirit. Now think about how Jesus told us about the spirit, right? So if you go back to John 14, I'm not reading it today. I'm just going to paraphrase and you can go back and read that chapter later. Jesus is getting his disciples ready for his departure, right? He's getting them ready for the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And in that preparation, he's saying, I'm going to send one. I'm going to send a comforter. I'm going to send an advocate to you who's going to remind you of everything that I've told you. Right? He's going to remind you of my words. He's going to open your eyes to this truth. And so then we see at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fall down upon those apostles that, that ignites the church. And it becomes a central focus of, of Paul's writings. We've already seen it in the letter to Ephesians. Right, chapter one, what does he say? When you believe, you are marked with the seal. What is that seal? The promised Holy Spirit that serves as a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance that God has in store for you. Chapter two, what does he say? You have access to God, how? Through the Spirit, right? That's how we find this relationship, this proximity. Chapter three, what does he say? All these things were revealed. This mystery was revealed by his Spirit, right? So the Spirit of God is what brings us together. The same spirit that united Jews and Gentiles, this incredible chasm that existed back then, is the same spirit that is at work in you and me. And so we can have preferences and have different expressions and still be united as one body of Christ across the world. And part of what unites us, part of what the spirit points us to is one hope, right? I love that, right? It's this constant reminder of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, which was a point of emphasis for us last week, right? What is that hope? Except that we are going to share in the glory of Christ at the end of the age, right? The hope that we profess is a defeat and a victory over death. The, the hope that we cling to is this idea of a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. That's the hope that binds us. And so what Paul is driving at is he says, listen, what you hope for in the future is going to determine your conduct in the present. Right? It's going to dictate how you live. So don't lose sight of this hope that you have. That's what you're living for. And I think that's such a good reminder for you and me. Right? Our hope is not in a vaccine. Our hope is not in a return to normalcy. Our hope is not in a government. Our hope is in the new heaven and the new earth. Our hope is in the return of Jesus Christ. It is that hope, that message, and that spirit that brings us together as one body. And that's such a good reminder for us in a season like this one.
right? Because it, there's a tendency to think that part of what has united us as a church family it, are our preferences, right? That, well, we're Baptists or, or we all live in Fort Worth. And so we're united by geography or a desire to be close to a, a college campus or we like church at 1030. I mean, whatever it is. And the reality is, is that now that we're living in a situation where hardly any of those things are available to us anymore, what we're able to remember is what really unites us is not geography, is not preferences. What unites us is the spirit of God that points to the hope of God. That's what we share. And we share it with brothers and sisters all over the world, right? And so, so that bringing together those first sets of three then leads to kind of this, this glue, this foundation of that body of Christ, which is what? That we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, right? So again, a distinction for the Greco-Roman time period that would have had numerous gods, numerous lords that people could have pledged allegiance to. For us, it is Jesus and only Jesus. It is never Jesus and someone else, Jesus and something else. It is Jesus and only Jesus. And the fact that we use the title of Lord reminds us that we have to give authority to something in our lives. Now, we, we don't always like to admit that, but, but we do. And so our life is often an evaluation of where are we going to, to place authority in, right? Sometimes we put it in somebody else. Sometimes we put it in a government. Sometimes we put it in a philosophy. A lot of times we like to just keep it for ourselves, right? And to trust ourselves to make decisions. But, but what the gospel commands us to do is to see Jesus as Lord and to give him authority. And the way in which we articulate that authority is with this shared faith, right? That, that's essentially what we've been talking about consistently throughout this year is that faith is this certainty, right? It's this, this trust that you're going to place in something, that to have this unwavering confidence and belief. And so essentially what we're saying is that our faith is that Jesus is who he said he was, right? He, he was and is the son of God. He died and was crucified on the cross, was buried, and then resurrected three days later conquering the grave, forgiving us of our sins, and leading us into eternal life. That, that's what we have decided to trust and have confidence in. And so the way in which we find an external representation of this faith and a representation of this lordship is through baptism. One of the most powerful ordinances that we have at our disposal to bring all this in to kind of a tangible expression in our midst. Because think about it. What is it that typically you hear at a, at a moment of baptism, right? You, you have this, this gesture where somebody is coming forward to say, I want to offer my life to Jesus, right? I want to be an instrument of his righteousness. And so what the question becomes is, well, then what is your profession of faith? And the answer is, Jesus is Lord, right? It is this beautiful picture of acknowledging the lordship of Jesus and the faith that we place in Jesus. And now when we go through that ordinance, what do we see? We see a tremendous picture of unity, right? Because here's what happens. It's a, it's a symbol that is, I'm going to be united with Jesus. I don't want to be united with him in his death, which is why we submerge someone under the water. But I also want to be united in a resurrection like his, which is why we bring him up out of the water. And so that symbol of baptism is one of unifying ourselves with Jesus, but also becomes a symbol of unifying ourselves with this one body that shares one spirit, that shares one hope. And so now we're brought into this incredible family that is not reserved for any one race or creed or age, but all people can have an opportunity to demonstrate that faith. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then all of a sudden it points to 
this kind of climactic moment, at least within this first paragraph, that all those things point to one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Those are your last set of three, right? And, and those, those descriptions really speak to God's characteristics, don't they? It all points back to God. And, and what we see with God is that he is over all. He is sovereign, right? He, he is in ultimate control. We see that he is through all. That, that gives us a picture of his divine agency, right? His creative power, that he is moving in our midst. He's at work, right? He's revealing his plan. He is in all. He, he dwells among us. What is the essence of that promise that he extends to, to those that trust in him? Except that I am with you, right? He is sovereign. He is moving. He is in. He is over all, through all, and in all. And so you have this incredible reality upon which the church is faced. All these realities that you see Paul consistently go through here with this uh, really beautiful description and the theme that ties it all together is oneness, right? It's, it's this picture of unity, of solidarity. That's the reality of the church. And because that's who the church is, because that's who Jesus is, because that's who God is, that's the way that we should conduct our lives. What we see is that unity becomes of utmost importance in order for us to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. Because these are the realities of the church. These are the realities of Jesus. These are the realities that we see in God himself. And so with that being laid out for us, the question then becomes, okay, how do we pursue this unity? How do we practice this unity? And, and how do we fight for it? And that's where we get to kind of backtrack up to verse two. So, so Paul's given that, opening statement, live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. And then he gives us very clear, practical instructions. Be completely humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another in love, right? Now, what I love about this is he says completely, right? Don't, don't be a little bit humble. Don't be somewhat humble or occasionally humble, completely, right? This is our disposition in, in life. One of the things that I think this reminds us of when we, when we see that emphasis on completely is that we really need to make sure, kind of similar to what I said earlier with this bringing into balance, is that we're the same person no matter where we are, right? That these characteristics and this conduct is, is not just for when we're with believers, right? It's, it's when we're conducting ourselves and relationships within the church and beyond it, right? In any arena of life. And so one of the questions I want you asking yourself today is, is your life consistent? Are you the same with the people that you know to be believers at church as you are with the people at home, as you are with people at work? Do you have different groups and different friends where you act a certain way in a different way because of who they are, because of what they believe, or are you just consistent? The reality is, is that to be complete in these characteristics means that no matter where we are, no matter what context, all relationships benefit from us carrying this sort of posture and this demeanor. And so, so what are these characteristics? Um, humility. Let's start with that one. I, I've said it before, but just as a reminder, what's so interesting about that word is that at this point in time, it was actually seen to be as a negative attribute. It was, it was actually seen to be a derogatory term. Uh, Greeks did not aspire to humility at all. It was perceived to be weak, and, and, and one of, of servant, a lack of freedom. And, and so it was not uh, viewed highly in, in high esteem at all. And then here comes this Christian movement and it claims it as a virtue. 
just such an incredible demonstration of this countercultural mindset that takes place with the gospel. And so an understanding of humility is, is really one of self-worth, uh, an appropriate view of self-worth that first and foremost, it, it's not about weakness and perceiving yourself to be weak. It, it's really about understanding that you are dependent upon God's grace, right? That this is, this is something that you need to be rescued. You need to be able to be um, a recipient of mercy. You're not perfect, right? It's having that sort of mentality that guards against pride, that guards against arrogance, and to understand the necessity of God's grace in your life. But what really brings it into even greater clarity is understanding that it's not just your dependency on God's grace, but your ability to see the worth of others, right? So it's not just an evaluation of self, it's evaluation of worth in others as well, so that you see that other people are just as worthy of that grace or in need of that grace as you are. And so you never think of yourself more highly than you ought, but consider other people better than yourselves. Right? That's the posture of humility. And you can imagine how that helps springboard into a lifestyle of unity. Now, what really kind of complements that characteristic of humility is this next term, gentleness. So to be gentle, again, is not just a picture of, of being weak or being timid or being soft. What it, what it really defines here is this mentality that says, I'm going to forego my rights for the common good, right? For the good of the group. And I, I think that's such an important thing for us to consider. And it, and it really serves as a timely reminder given what we're going through right now, because everything about this crisis um, ignites that instinctive self-preservation, right? What, what can I do to keep myself safe? And I think we've all had our moments, right? Where we've looked at the stranger kind of with, you know, sketchy eyes because we're like, man, they could have it. And, and we go to the store and we get all the meat we can get. We, we find toilet paper and Clorox wipes and we practically throw a party because it's ours, right? And we get to keep them for ourselves. And, and that's, a, that's a, I think, a natural reaction. But what gentleness compels us to do is to set those ideas towards self-preservation, our own rights, so to speak, to set them aside and to give consideration, what am I doing for the common good, right? What am I doing for the good of others? And, and that's a question you should be asking yourself. What, what are you doing right now in the midst of this crisis that demonstrates an awareness of the common good? What, what are you doing in your life that demonstrates this sort of gentleness, that you're willing to uh, subvert your own self-interest for the good of the group, for the good of others, right? That's gentleness. Now, then this is matched with patience. And, and patience really means to be long-tempered, right? That's a, that's a simple and very easy definition. And I think it works really well when we think about the opposite. Because I'm sure many of us have had moments in our life, or we know people in our life who are not long-tempered, but short-tempered. And, and we know what that's like. We, we see that immediate reaction. We see that fuse that just gets ignited with anger and frustration. So patience is about seeing these shortcomings the mistakes, the failures, the, the wrongs that somebody might exhibit towards us and having a long temperament and, and, and not reacting, restraining any sort of vengeance or reaction against those things. And again, I think that's a great reminder for us given our current situation. Because if you're like me, one of the things that can create a short temper is, is really uh, stress environments. Right, if I'm stressed in one area of life, I tend to be a little bit more irritable in all the other areas. And so all of a sudden, I've got this stress that's swelling up, be it because of work, be it because of something at home, or because I'm going through a pandemic, 
or whatever the heck is going on. And all of a sudden, everything else is more irritating. And so you can find yourself being more short-tempered. And the reality is, is that what we have to do is that despite that stress, we need to remember that patience calls us to look at those shortcomings of others, those things that might create that irritation, and create a long temperament rather than a short one, right? To, to create a sense of grace that we extend to others as well. And I believe Jesus serves as such a powerful example in this, right? Because if you think about all that he endured, right, that, that Passion Week and how he stood in the face of mocking, he stood in the face of false accusations, physical threats, physical abuse, suffering, torture, even death, and he didn't open his mouth. Why? He was patient because he knew what was coming. Right? That, that's the sort of posture that we need to conduct ourselves in. So when we see other people, be it, be it publicly and in the way that we're watching politicians react or officials react or friends or neighbors react, or if it's even in our own home, right? We need to choose patience in how we respond, restraining and withholding that, that desire to try to respond in a vengeance or any sort of um, derogatory way and demonstrate that sort of grace that Christ demonstrates. Now, the amplification of patience is this word forbearance. And I love this word because it, it means to build one another up. And, and it's uh, bearing with one another in love, right? So, so essentially the difference is, is that the reality is, is you could be patient and, and really just have a passive tolerance of someone else, right? This person irritates me, but I'm just going to tolerate them. Forbearance takes it further and says, well, actually you need to build them up. You, you, you don't just need to tolerate them because of their shortcomings or because, because of their failures. You actually need to love them completely, even though they have them. Right? You build them up. You bear with one another in love. And so really what these characteristics all have in common and what Paul is hinting at there is this manifestation of love. Right? Uh, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, those are all descriptors of love. And so part of what we're seeing here being explained is this idea that the lack of love results in the loss of unity. Right? That, that we need to carry that disposition of love in all seasons and in all circumstances in order to pursue and cultivate this unity that we are called to and is really the reality of this oneness that we're founded upon. And when we do so, we begin to live a life that's worthy of the calling that we've received. Now, here's where I want to begin to, to resolve this message this morning is really verse 3 and how I think it speaks to the challenges that we face in trying to do this. Because I'm curious, what, what would you say typically serves as a hindrance for you living in, in this way, right? What, what are those obstacles in your life that prevent you from demonstrating humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance? And, and I, if I had to guess, um, I don't think it's a problem of knowledge, right? I don't think anything that we've read here today is, is like illuminating, and, and never heard before. I think it's even somewhat kind of intuitive. Right? I, don't, I don't think many of you are sitting at home going, wait, I should be humble? That's shocking. Never thought of that before, you know, or wow, I need to be patient. I think all of us can acknowledge that those are better qualities, but I think we also would acknowledge that we struggle with it. And why is that? Right? What is that struggle? And I, and I would venture a suggestion this morning that I think what the greatest hindrance is, is not one of knowledge, but one of mindset. Right, that, 
that the reality is, is that we know it's going to be difficult. And Paul does as well, which is what he says in verse 3. Notice what he says in verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Right? That verb, make every effort, insinuates that you're going to meet resistance. That you're going to find obstacles. But you have to have a resolute mindset to overcome this unity is of utmost importance, so make every effort to achieve it. I think the challenge that we have is that a lot of times we want a cheapened experience of unity, right? So, so what happens is, is we, we know we should do these things. We know we should be patient, but what we ultimately do is as soon as we find those challenges, those, those conflicts in life or with relationships that are going to challenge our ability to be humble, patient, yada, 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 we just, we move on. We say, well, let me go find somebody else. Let me go find new relationships. Let me go find new areas. Let me go find a new church. Let me go find a new job. Whatever it is where people ultimately look more like me, act more like me, think more like me. Because there it's easier for me to be unified with them. And that's a very cheapened and shallowed expression of unity. And the reality is, is that we choose it because we just don't want to put in the effort. Right? We, want to, we don't want to put in the resolve. The, the, the truth is, is that when you gather broken people, sinful people together. We're, we're going to have shortcomings and failings that are going to rub us the wrong way. And that's going to take effort in order to fight for this unity. We're going to have moments and seasons that are going to create obstacles and difficulty that are going to challenge this unity. And so the question is, are we willing to put forth the effort? Are we willing to really dig deep and strive for what that unity looks like? Again, consider our current situation. Right? We are literally being told, keep a distance from one another. Isolate, separate. And that is putting a new stress on what it means to build relationships and what it means to be together. And so the question that we all have to ask ourselves right now is, are we going to put in the effort? Right? Are we going to work hard and recognize that this is worth it? It is of utmost importance. And though we have restrictions we're going to find whatever avenue we can that is appropriate and that is acceptable to demonstrate humility and gentleness and patience and build one another up in love, even if it's more difficult, because we know that this is the reality upon which the church has been founded, and it is the way in which we live a life that is worthy of the calling that we've received. Are you willing to put forth that effort? Are you willing to strive for that unity? You know, there are numerous examples that I could share with you this morning that, that to me demonstrate it. But there's this one story that I came across probably within the first week or two where all this went down that to me really exemplifies it. Um, when we knew that we were going to have to shift to this kind of online forum and so much of what we do on this campus was going to be shut down, we, we immediately made it a priority to start reaching out to, to members uh, within our church. And we still do that. And hopefully you're getting phone calls from somebody on staff just checking in and praying with you. But one of the first phone calls I made, and I'm, I'm not going to share the name of, of, of this individual just for sake of confidentiality, but he's an older gentleman who really doesn't have much at home, doesn't have TV, doesn't have internet, and uh, just a very modest living, no, no family living with him. And um, when I called to check in on him and just see how he was doing, he was pretty candid and just said, you know, this is going to be challenging because, you know, I come to church on Sunday. And then I come up there and I volunteer and work on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I meet with my guys on Wednesday night. He's been a part of a discipleship group for a couple years now. And he said, man, that's my therapy. 
That's how I get through the week. And it's all been taken from me. And in the way he said it, I mean, ignited a level of concern in me where I was like, man, that is, that's a pretty significant disruption. We're going to have to really be intentional with him. And sure enough, before I could even start like writing down some suggestions or thoughts, he said, but you know what's been awesome? He goes, just this past Sunday, one of my friends from that, that group, he came over and he brought his phone and we got to listen to a sermon together. We had church right here. Another one of my friends, he came by later that week, brought my laundry and he checked in on me, made sure I had my food. And he just started to describe everything that we've just read. Pictures of brothers and sisters, the church coming together, demonstrating humility, right? Considering somebody else's needs above their own, doing something for the common good, showing patience by embracing the shortcomings that somebody else has, by actually building them up in love. But what was really prevalent in that story was this picture of numerous people that were saying, yes, I'll make the effort. It's different. It's difficult. It's challenging, but I'll make the effort because we know it is of utmost importance to maintain this unity through the spirit of God and the bond of peace. And because of that, I come here today grateful. And I want to encourage you that you join me in that gratitude and that collectively we can all say, man, I love the church, love who she is, and I love what she's capable of when we come together and experience this sort of unity. So let's continue to pray and desire that sort of picture in our lives, both today and forevermore. Pray with me. Father in heaven, I, I pray first and foremost, um, just once again, a prayer of praise and adoration that you invite us into a beautiful picture of oneness. God, that you show us what it's like to be a part of one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. God, that you are over us, you are through us, and you are in us. God, we, we are so grateful for that reality. And we come before you now, Father, confessing that there are numerous times and circumstances where we fail to, to carry ourselves in a manner that preserves that unity. And so help us, God. We, we pray that you would help us be humble and gentle and patient. Help us to bear with one another in love. But more than anything, God, give us the resolve and the determination in times just as these to make every effort to preserve this unity through the bond of peace, God. We long to submit ourselves to you and cry out and, and offer ourselves to you with a desire to have our lives be worthy of this gospel that saves. So help us, Lord, and help us strive for this unity that you so freely give. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.